Hello, and welcome to our second episode of From the Pastor's Bookshelf. I'm Ryan, and I am here with Jeremy, and we are excited to bring you another book that we're going to be talking about. As you can see, the setup is a little bit different this time because we are in quarantine, and so we have to practice our social distancing. And so let's check it out here and make sure that we're doing good. All right. There we go. Yep. Six feet on the nose. We're doing great. All right, so nice. Jeremy, what book are we going to be talking about today? Yeah, and uh, so yeah, we're excited to have episode two of uh, from the pastor's bookshelf. But this, um, uh, you know, it's the whole idea behind this podcast once again is that there's all kinds of things that uh, flood our imagination. There's all kinds of things that uh, take up space in our minds, and this is a step towards uh, let's fill it with some good literature. Primarily, we want to fill it with God's Word, but also a good books. And there's going to be a wide range of books that we're looking at. Um, uh, one, at some point, we're going to do Les Mis, uh, Les Miserables, and uh, look at that. Uh, but today, we're looking at Trevin, Wax, Trevin K. Wax's book called Eschatological Discipleship. And it's an excellent book. And I'll just say right from the beginning that we're not. there's a no way that we're going to be able to uh, exhaust all of this, <laughs> yeah. or any even anywhere close. But we want to give some of the brief uh, snapshots of what he's talking about, and then hopefully folks will read it because uh, it's a it's a very good uh, read. So, a um, couple things uh, to start off to understand what eschatological discipleship is. First thing you have to understand is worldview. And that's where he, he begins in the book, is talking about worldview, and specifically uh, what worldview is. And there's a definition uh, that N.T. Wright, uh, he quotes, uh, and he describes it this way, that a worldview is the basic stuff of human existence, the lens through which the world is seen, the blueprint for how one should live in it, and above all, the sense of identity and place which enables human beings to be what they are. Hmm. And so your worldview is something that uh, answers all kinds of questions that yeah. everyone has. You need a worldview. You're going to have a worldview. There's no way that you can exist in the world without it. It's how you find your bearings of where you exist in space and time and how you define all kinds of things. It, uh, he describes it as, um, uh, you know, is time linear or is it cyclical? And so if you live in a... Uh, uh, like a Hindu culture, your worldview is going to be way different because you're thinking there's yeah. a big cycle that you're going through over and over again versus if it's linear, it's heading somewhere. Uh, or if you see yourself primarily as an individual or primarily as someone connected to a group, uh, or it's going to be about what uh, worldview will determine what produces fear or revulsion in an individual, uh, what produces joy or sorrow. A lot of times we think these are just universal things that define that, but really it's your worldview. Uh, uh, what morals are worth modeling? What manners are worth employing? What types of villains uh, are there in your worldview or heroes that keep on showing up? And so it's, uh, and it's inevitable. He describes uh, in the book how uh, with a worldview, uh, you can't help. Be, it's, you don't just. Feel, uh, it's inevitable to have one, but also your worldview is inevitably shaped by others. You don't create a worldview in isolation. You don't just. Dis yeah. We we think, especially in 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 an uh, individualistic culture, we tend to think I'm I'm coming up with my worldview. Yeah. Uh, but the reality, as he describes, is that you were social beings, and so we're bumping up against one another's opinions and thoughts so constantly, and all of that is shaping our sense of the world and answering those questions. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I think that um, when we think of worldview, we think about it not so much as the world that we see, but how we see the world that we mm -hmm. see, right? Mm -hmm. now, obviously, a good analogy is a pair of glasses, right? A pair of yep. glasses can either help you see reality more clearly, or it can distort the reality that you see depending on what pair of glasses you're wearing. Yeah. And so if you wear one that's the right prescription based on you know, obviously based on your eyes, then you're going to see things more clearly. But um, if you've ever taken somebody else's glasses and put them on, then it, it, it distorts things. It changes images in ways that are really interesting, or especially like a pair of sunglasses that actually colors the world very differently. And so it's not so much what you see, but how you see the things that you're seeing. I remember, uh, um, I don't remember the author, but um, he was talking about the whole idea of cultural narrative, how we need to take the joys and the sorrows and organize them into a story. And that basically is what makes up our worldview. Yeah. It, it makes sense of the joys, the sorrows, um, as you said, the heroes, the villains. And we have to arrange those things in such a way that we can feel like we have a sense of purpose and meaning, not just sort of frivolously living out our days yeah. into nothingness. And so we have to organize things in that sort of that sort of narrative way, we we have mm -hmm. to organize a worldview, or else we feel like we're just lost in space. Yeah, yeah, and it uh, uh, you need you need to have certain questions answered, yeah. uh, and in a way that makes sense to you. And the, usually that shows up in the way that it makes sense to a group of others. If all these people agree that this is the way things are, then we grow in our sense of confidence. Then that uh, okay, this is this is the way the world really is. Yeah. And that's why it's interesting when people of two different worldviews or two different drastically different cultures uh, interact with one another, how there can be such roadblocks in just understanding one another is because yeah. the lens, the glasses they're wear wearing, as you say, uh, are so different. And it can be difficult for them to understand one another, not, be not just because there's a chasm there of understanding, but so much of what we believe we think is just so. This yeah. is reality. Yeah. We don't yeah. see it as a lens through which we're viewing reality. We see it as reality. Yeah. And so when someone is looking at it differently, we say, uh, what's wrong with you? And uh, not, I'm not, we're not suggesting, nor certainly is Wax suggesting that it's all relative, therefore. <laughs> Actually, the point of it is there's all these worldviews out there, and he wants us to be drawn into a biblical worldview. That right. is the proper way to view true uh, reality. But worldview asks uh, questions and gives answers. Answers to the question of, who are we? No more fundamental question than that. Who are we? Uh, where are we? What is wrong? And what is the solution? And uh, that's where we get to the whole understanding of eschatology is... Um, or what, what, what is eschatological discipleship, is that there's a fifth question that a worldview answers uh, that he really hones in on in this book, and that is, what time is it? Hmm. As you mentioned, uh, it's a story. We have to make sense of the sorrows and the joys and turn them into a story. Well, every story, you can't understand a story unless you know where you are in the story, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's the question. If, if the, the grand narrative, the grand story that we're all experiencing together uh, understanding what time it is in that story uh, is essential. And uh, yeah. that's what this book is really concerned about, that question of what time is it. And there's a quote Good. that I want to read uh, from that, uh, the book here, where he says, The worldview question leads to a consideration of eschatology, for no one can properly answer the question of what time it is without considering where he or she is in the narrative of world history and what the future is or should be. Good. 
Yeah, and just a, a quick, um, quick clarifier here. So the whole, the whole realm. Well, what is eschatology? I think it'd be good to yeah. maybe define that a little bit. And so we often think about it as a study of the end, right? Esca from the word eschaton, meaning the end, and then logi, the logic of the end. And so, what is the study of the end? In other words, where are we heading? Mm-hmm. What is what is going to happen in the end, and how are we how are we getting there? And obviously, as Wax brings out, eschatology is much bigger than just um, than just where we're heading, it affects what we do today. It affects mm-hmm. how we view the world today in relationship to where we're heading and what our ultimate aim is. And so I think a lot of people, even the word eschatology, it sounds like something that should be in the back of a systematic theology textbook, sure. you know, not something. It's it's not a word that we usually throw around at dinner conversations. Yeah, what's <laughs> so, your eschatology? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it can even be, even the whole um, realm of eschatology, it can be potentially divisive. There can be people who, um, especially if you hold really tightly to any one given eschatology, than in the specifics, then um, it can be a tough thing. And so, but bringing bringing sort of these these things that we often put off towards the future and bringing them into the present reality and showing how those shape our thoughts and our everyday actions, um, yeah. is is important. Yeah, he and he, in the book he doesn't get into the detail of are you you know pre yeah mill uh, mill or post mill or any of that kind of stuff. The idea yeah. is where is the story heading ultimately? Yes. Where is future heading yes. ultimately? And um, and there's personal as and so he, what his point is saying everyone has an eschatology, mm-hmm. whether you're an atheist, whether you're a Christian. It's not yeah eschatology. While the word may only be used typically in systematic theology books, everyone, no matter who you are, whether you're Christian, non-Christian, atheist, or whatever, you're, you have an eschatology. And he breaks it down into three different levels of that there's a personal aspect to eschatology, a collective, and then a cosmic. So the understanding of, okay, where's the world heading? Where's the cosmos heading? Where uh, is all of people therefore heading, and where am I heading? So an atheist would say, well, the universe is doomed, or this earth is doomed for destruction. That's his cosmic view of eschatology. Our um, uh, uh, Collectively, we're all going to eventually die, and that's it. And for personally, he says, this life is all there is, the atheist would say, that, and, and, and uh, once I die, then I'm done, and I just kind of go into nothingness. Well, that's an eschatology. Yeah. And what your eschatology is determines, as you said, how you live now. How you live now is based on that. You cannot operate in the world without a strong sense of what your past is and the assumptions about the future. The present is directly impacted by your assumptions about the future, and that's your eschatology. Yeah. So that's the point he's making. It's not so. Don't be turned off in this podcast if you're thinking, "Oh, great! I don't want to go into looking at a bunch of charts about when Jesus is coming back or whatever." That's not what this is about. It's yeah. basically asking the question of uh, your you, you your eschatology is best defined not by whether you're post, pre, ah, mill, <laughs> yeah. but by what you're living, how you're living now. Yeah. You may subscribe to a certain eschatology, a Christian eschatology, but you might be living according to a worldly eschatology. You might be living as if uh, the, the, where things are heading are uh, different than what you subscribe to, and that, that, that's yeah. kind of one of the points that he draws yeah. out in the book. Yeah, here's a, a quote that um, that Wax puts forward. He says this. He says, when we see eschatology as something primarily futuristic, 
about how Jesus will return or about what happens to us personally when we die, we tend to engage in theological speculation but fail to learn how to interpret today's world in light of the Bible's big vision of world history. And so I think if, if we, even if we're turned off by the idea of eschatology, mm-hmm. then um, we, might be, we, we might not be aware of the eschatology we're actually living by. We may have thoughts about what eschatology is, but unless we see it as really expansive and broad, then um, we're not going to be able to interpret our own life. We're not going to be able to interpret our <clears throat> worldview and the worldview of those around us as well if yeah. we're not able to see how eschatology plays into, into the past, present, and the future. Good. Yeah, he says there's great danger that we might claim a Christian eschatology but be living according to a different eschatology and not even know it. Yeah. We succumb to a false vision of reality in ways that we might never have foreseen. And so because we're social beings and our worldview and therefore our eschatology is shaped not just by what we read necessarily, but by the social interactions that we have with people. And so there's all these competing or rival, as he puts it, eschatologies that we live in, that we are immersed in. And uh, it's we're foolhardy to think that we're not being impacted by those. It'd be like diving into a pool of water and saying, no, I'm not getting wet. Yeah. The fact is we live in a culture that has eschatologies that are drastically different from the biblical eschatology. And we are wet and don't realize it. We are impacted yeah. by those. We're living in accordance to, according to those, and we don't yeah. recognize it. And so the whole... Uh, then that's where eschatological discipleship comes into play. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's not just... It's not a book about what is eschatology, but what is eschatological discipleship, and this is what how he defines it. In short, eschatological discipleship is spiritual formation that seeks to instill wisdom regarding the contemporary setting in which Christians find themselves, in contrast to rival conceptions of time and progress. Hmm. And that calls for contextualized obedience as demonstration of the Christian belief that the biblical account of the world's past, present, and future is true. So what he's advocating for, and I think is a brilliant approach, is to say discipleship um, you, if you're wanting to, what is discipleship? Discipleship is uh, wanting to see everyone baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for those who believe, you want to help them uh, obey what Jesus taught, Matthew 28, right? right. Uh, b- b- uh, obey his commandments. And what I think he would say is that you cannot do that. You cannot come into harmony with what Christ has called us to do unless we consider the rival eschatologies that are around us and how they're impacting us and how we might be living according to those. So that we, so we have to confront those, recognize those, confront those, and then come into a biblical eschatology. That's the discipleship that we uh, need to live out. And so um, to get into now the uh, three, uh, what, what he does is he uh, lists three rival eschatologies that are prominent in our, um, in our society, and he unpacks those and then provides ways out. Hmm. So that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time is uh, to looking at that. Where, and, and there's much more to the book than just this, but again, we don't have time to get into all of it. Uh, but he goes into great depth. But we're just going to skim over or talk a bit about um, the three rival eschatologies. And the three are um, a uh, enlightenment eschatology, uh, the eschatology of the sexual revolution, and then consumerism. 
the mm-hmm. eschatology of consumerism. Three eschatologies, three uh, that, that exist in our society that impact how Christians live and believe, and you may not even know it. So let's unpack those and uh, take a look at them in turn and see how we can uh, you know, come out of that, okay? Good. So first, um, let's look at the Enlightenment. That's where he starts with the Enlightenment eschatology. Uh, now, the Enlightenment, what is the Enlightenment? You've probably heard that term before, uh, mm-hmm. if you're our listeners, but uh, it's just a philosophical tradition that existed uh, from 1688 to 1789, give or take a few years, but that's one of the, that's one of the dates that he provides. And um, the motto of the Enlightenment was, have the courage to use your own understanding without another's guidance. Mm-hmm. Okay, Have the courage to use your own reason your own rationality to try to figure out what truth is, what reality is on your own without others imposing anything on you. Sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, then it's the philosophy of freedom and rights yeah. that were the basis of the foundation of our, our republic yeah. was based in enlightenment, the enlightenment philosophical tradition. We have certain rights. We want to forge our own way forward without anyone impeding upon that. And so the, the greatest sin in um, someone in an Enlightenment view is don't tread on me. Don't tell me how I ought to live. Don't tell me what I ought to think. I get to figure this out for myself. That was revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If we live, the society we live in now, we might think, well, that's just self-evident. That's how things are. We ought to do that. No, that is not. That was a new idea that was infectious and just spread like wildfire through the Western world. And now, I heard an illustration, Tim Keller used this illustration one time to describe big ideas or big things that impact us in ways we may not recognize it. And it's like if you live in a town, like we do, we live in a town where there's a mill. And when you live in a town where there's a mill, um, you don't recognize the smell of the mill because it's the smell so big, it's ever, especially when I was a kid growing up in Camas, Washougal area, uh, yeah. the uh, mill was uh, everywhere, or <laughs> the smell of the mill. Now it's a little better because they've, they're not as big as they used to be. But if you were in a house and one room was smelled bad, you would recognize that room smells bad. But if you live in a society or a town where the, the smells everywhere, you don't recognize the one room smelling different from the other because it touches everything. That's the same with um, the Enlightenment eschatology. Mm. It's everywhere, and so we don't even recognize it. We just think yeah. this is how it is. This is what it ought to smell like, right? Yeah, yeah. This is how it is, and this is how it should be. You know, and any, mm-hmm. and obviously anybody who challenges that is um, on the wrong side of history. They might say, sure, yeah. So um, one of the things they did because it was really big on reason and saying we need to uh, look at the empirical world and and deduce. And it's, there was really a uh, an exaltation of science, mm-hmm. and he says it's not that science became the only source of knowledge, but it became the supremely privileged form of knowledge. Yeah. So in state, there was a move in the Enlightenment away from revealed revelation yeah. to a reason. Hmm. And so revelation was seen as something that, oh, it might help people be happier in life, but that's not truth. What, what's supreme, what takes, what, what is now at the top is science, the scientific method. And um, because they experienced a lot of progress in uh, different areas by doing that, they, it reinforced the idea that we're on the right track here. The Industrial mm-hmm. Revolution came out of that. Yeah. Technological innovation exploded following the Enlightenment uh, that uh, made society uh, more comfortable in a lot of ways, but but also at the same time separated itself from um, 
uh, revelation. Yeah. Separated uh, for, uh, itself from true reality, even though empirically things were, there was progress that was happening. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and we, we don't want to uh, make it come off as if the Enlightenment is entirely bad. Almost everything <laughs> sure. that we have, you know, in, in uh, human rights is the result of the Enlightenment mm -hmm. largely. Our whole education yeah. system is the result of the Enlightenment, you know, and those are, and those are at least our modern education system. Yeah. So those are good things, but it's a bit of a double-edged sword as well, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the things that cut towards progress also completely changed our our worldview and so as yeah it changed some of the assumptions that we have like we for see. example the a big one that he draws out in the book is we lost our sense of mystery yeah yeah uh it used to be that there's things you didn't understand and they were just a mystery and and you accepted it as a mystery uh but with the rise and again it wasn't that because uh, obviously science is great <laughs> and very helpful but when science becomes the primary source of knowledge uh, then it uh, it changes all those assumptions. But uh, specifically, we lo we've lost our sense of the sacred as a result. We lose mystery. We lose a sense of the sacred. And he says, now there are no mysteries in the world, only puzzles, still unresolved by scientists. Yeah, yeah. So you lose the sense of the transcendent. And everything um, now in the world, according to Enlightenment uh eschatology is there's no mystery there's nothing transcendent there's nothing that you can't ever understand it's just puzzles for us to figure out and then progress forward right. and that leads us to the one word definition of what how could he says how can you uh, sum up the uh, enlightenment's eschatology and it's in the one word progress yeah because now we have science and reason moving us forward that progress is what's happening now it's everything everything is progress we're moving forward we're advancing we're improving yeah. day by day step by step one innovation after another one puzzle unlocked after another leads us to a uh, uh, a, a better a better world yeah. and so it's progress and so what this does though is because when you diminish revelation uh, and then you also diminish uh, by, by by embracing progress as a worldview, as an eschatology. Meaning, where am I at in time? I'm in the I'm I'm in, I'm here, but we're progressing forward. So the future should be better because we have more puzzles that we're unlocking, and things are getting better and better and better. But what does that do to our understanding of the past? Yeah. Anything old in the Enlightenment eschatology is bad. Yeah. Anything old is bad. It used to be that someone who was aged was revered and respected. They'd experienced more life, so they had something to offer. But now, to be told uh, that you're old is a pejorative term. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a put-down. Yeah. Like, you know, George Carlin famously said in one of his stand-up routines, you know, we, we change our age. It was after I turned 40, I didn't say I was old. I said, I'm getting older. We try to soften it. We don't want to get old. <laughs> Middle-aged. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah. all the time we're trying to... So we, we, but that's, that, that isn't... If you ever heard yourself say, oh, that's an old song, or that's yeah. that's that 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 that's that was that that was done in the '90s. Or anything old is being bad. Where does that come from? That comes from an Enlightenment eschatology. Mm -hmm. We think new is good, but old is bad. Why? Because we've embraced the idea of progress. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That and uh, when you look at sort of the um, the history of epistemology, you know, the history of how we get mm -hmm. knowledge. There's sort of uh, I've, I've heard uh, different different authors compare it to sort of a three legged stool, and there were three legs of epistemology: tradition, revelation, and reason. 
and you see leading to sort of postmodernism that we're in now, you slowly see over over hundreds of years, you see each one of those legs knocked out by various um, just significant cultural shifts in the mm-hmm. West, at least. And so, and, uh, you know, the, um, the uh, uh, Reformation was a big part of that for the whole idea of tradition, right? The Catholic Church was elevating tradition to the level of revelation. And so the Reformation came by and said, no, no, we need revelation. And so they sort of, sort of knocked out that leg of tradition. And then the Enlightenment comes by. And it says, no, no, we can't, we can't just base, some, base something on revelation. We need reason. And so they, they took revelation and knocked that leg out of the chair. And so we were left with sort of just a, a, one, a one-legged stool, which is, which is pretty yeah. hard to balance on. Yeah. Um, and then obviously there were a series of things that happened. You, know, you, you see really the, um, a lot of the height of that still, still going, the Enlightenment uh, eschatology going very strong in the 19th century, early 20th century. And with some of the some of the social reforms that um, a lot of the the um, a lot of the world was trying to bring about through education and through these different things, thinking that if we could if we could simply educate people, then we can bring about the type of progress that we're looking for. Because in an Enlightenment eschatology, really the problem is bad thinking. And so if we can correct bad thinking, if we can re- correct regressive thinking, if we mm-hmm. can get on the right side of history, mm-hmm. then we can bring about the utopia. We can bring about this sort of this sort of uh, uh, humanistic paradise that we're hoping for. And so you see a yeah. huge push for that in the late 19th, early 20th century. And then a series of things happened to bring us to postmodernism. So yeah, with, with that epistemological change, it obviously transforms the way we view our faith yeah. in, a, in a very significant way. Um, if you take this whole idea of reason, my ability to understand something and to think it through and figure it out for myself without anyone's help, then there's a variety of ways that that impacts the way uh, people do discipleship, right? Mm-hmm. You see, uh, lots of different finger or uh, rea- uh, lot, lot, lot through history since the Enlightenment. You see a lot of things come up. This would be something like this. Well, the Bible's great, but based on what we now know, based on the progress of the last few decades, we now know this, and so we can't really rely on the Bible. It's too old, and so you look at the Bible as an ancient text that is no longer relevant. Now, talk about a dangerous, if, if there's the most dangerous thing that uh, and, uh, the eschatology of the Enlightenment brings to uh, uh, the Christian, it's that. Mm-hmm. And uh, this idea that progress now takes the progress, the progress of civilization, the progress of changing thought from generation to generation, that takes precedent over uh, ancient revelation. Yeah. That, 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 that will destroy anyone's discipleship and cause you to not even be a disciple in that, in that sense. But uh, one of the ways that uh, it happens is if you're, if you're lying solely on that arm, or on that leg, rather, of reason, then uh, and, and, and combining that with this idea of progress through reason is that you do this. He says, if we succumb to that eschatology, we will not necessarily uh, deny openly the significance of the resurrection, but uh, we will uh, privatize its meaning reducing the public implications of the event and limiting Christianity to matters related to personal piety and personal salvation. So it becomes about my faith, my understanding of Scripture. This is what Jesus means to me, you know, that kind of thing. And so that that is dangerous. And so there's a a, a throwing out of the old and a huge um, exaltation of the subjective understanding of the Scriptures. 
yeah. uh, or and in, in removing its objective um, uh, mandate to uh, to things like morality, to things like uh, uh, well, all kinds of sin. Now it's just about how can I feel better? How can I figure this out myself? And so, when you have a good deal of um, uh, Christians or, or so-called Christians going in that direction, there's always going to be a reaction, right? So the uh, the reaction to that is fear and resentment. And specifically, uh, he says, in a society where Christians feel entitled to privilege, resentment is one of the primary temptations. Mm. So a reaction to this progressive uh, Christianity, if you will, is to have a nostalgia for the past. Yeah. And it's really interesting because on one end you have someone saying the past is bad, and on the other you have an exaltation of the past. Yeah. It's you're not yes, it's right to say no. The um, uh, the scriptures should be uh, always held in the highest of of esteem and reverence, but we don't we don't, we're not we don't just do that because we look we long for a culture that propped up our faith that was easier that was comfortable and so we long for that and we become nostalgic for that time and actually call that time and look at it as being better than it actually was. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of us we uh, talk about maybe some some golden age, you know, mm -hmm. golden age of the church or golden age of Christianity. Yeah. And maybe long. Oh, if only I lived during this time. Whatever yeah. it is, right? You can you can look historically at all sorts of different different uh, slots where that might fit. Yeah. We're not recognizing, not understanding that yes, there was maybe a lot of light during certain eras uh, throughout church history, but there was a lot of darkness too in mm -hmm. all sorts of different areas. And every single era of Christianity, or even throughout some major revival. So we can look at there were areas of uh, just tremendous glory and tremendous growth mm -hmm. uh, for the church and in, in discipleship and all these different areas, but there was also darkness and some mm -hmm. some significant blind spots uh, through history that you can you can pretty easily pinpoint when you when you dive into the history there. Yeah. So one mindset says it's all bad. Yeah. And the other one says no, it was all amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because there's there's truth to the argument that. Um, there's 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 things we ought to change, yeah. And there's things we ought to not change. So uh, that we get we get stuck if we just fall into one camp or the other. He and, and but the big thing in terms of eschatological discipleship, and this is the thing I'd, I'd really like our listeners to really grab onto here is this because I think all of us can relate to that sense of fear and even resentment that comes when you see culture moving away. We, we're losing that undergirding. We're, yeah. we're, we're losing that support system, if you will. And it's, it's, it's not that we should not decry injustice, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but be honest about what we're upset about. Hmm. Upset about the comfort that, that, we're, that we're losing, hmm. or are we uh, upset about the injustice of it? Two, two very different things. But the big thing that gets lost uh, is uh, hope. Yeah. That's the big thing that gets lost. And in terms of our Christian or biblical eschatology, we ought to have a transcendent hope. We're always hopeful because we know where the story is going. If yeah. our eyes are too much on the past, we want to get back there and we're angry that we're not there and we lose hope and we're just filled with resentment and fear, which is incredibly destructive and a horrible witness, by the way. Um, but he says this, Christian hope is a sword that cuts through the marrow of resentment challenging our fear of injustice going unnoticed by reminding us of the future when God will right all wrongs. Mm -hmm. So that's where it comes yeah. back to eschatology, is that we recognize this is God's story. He's whatever, every 
Christian who's ever lived through whatever time in history has had to deal with challenges uh, in that culture, had to deal with various rival eschatologies, and his glory always appeared and continues moving us forward to that time where he will right all wrongs. Yeah. And so that's the thing. If we live in enlightenment cult, uh, eschatology or enlightenment culture, and the way forward is, uh, or the, the danger, I think, is to uh, fall into fear and resentment and to lose our hope, to yeah. lose our sense of hope. Yeah, 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 that's really good. Um, yeah. Yeah, so and he says, tell a better story. So what do you do in the midst of all this? Tell a better story, one of hope based not on the myth of progress, but on the resurrection. Yeah. Not on the myth of progress. We buy in, if we are wanting to um, go back, in a sense, uh, then we're, uh, we're kind of, in a sense, buying into the myth of progress. And we're, and we're pretending like this is all there is. Yeah. Which is uh, the, the most enlightenment thing you could do. <laughs> this is all there is, and we need to just kind of progress forward and get better. Yeah. I think, um, I think uh, even in terms of church history, one thing that you see is oftentimes, oftentimes it is during those dark times when the church shines the brightest, right? Mm -hmm. It's when the church has been marginalized or, or when there's been a calamity, a plague or something like that where, um, where God's church has really been able to shine. It's, not, it's often not when the church is um, sort of winning the culture war to, yeah. to, uh, to say. And so when, as, as the church historically has gotten more and more cultural power, oftentimes there was a lot of corruption that came with that as well. And so not to, not to you know, again, look for the golden age of persecution or something like that, no, but yeah. um, just to see <laughs> yeah. that God's glory shines through, um, sometimes even brighter in those, in those dark moments. And so not needing to yearn for the cultural support of our worldview, um, but trusting that we serve a God that's so much bigger than that. Yeah, yeah. What, what is your eschatology? What yeah. what do you believe is the story, and where are things heading? And even like right now, in our in our uh, uh, one of the things that a worldview does is it gives you a sense of security and comfort. Mm -hmm. And so, what's very revealing is that in a time of crisis, we tend to go to our worldview to make us feel better. Yeah, we go to good. our worldview to make us feel more comfortable. And uh, so, as we're in a time of crisis, like we are right now with yeah. the COVID nineteen. Fiasco is uh, it, it shows us it, it allows us to, to kind of see where we're at. Yeah, so and I think it, I think that one way that um, this whole pandemic is particularly um, sort of sort of poked at the Enlightenment worldview is there are so many things that we just simply don't know about mm -hmm. it. There are so many things we don't know. We don't have a cure, right? We're not. We're hopefully progressing towards that, but I think it's really challenged the whole idea that we can sort of think our way out of every problem, yeah. right? Because it's invisible, it's unknown, it's spreading faster than we can anticipate it, and we're trying everything that we can, but it's yeah. really, it's sort of threatening our enlightenment worldview because we just don't know, and there's no amount of reasoning at this point that uh, that has gotten us out of it yet or gotten us much better. Yeah. And so, you know, hopefully hopefully progress will be made, right? Mm -hmm. we, we pray that we will be able to um, um, move towards a better solution, but I think that that's part of why people are feeling so anxious is just the simple uncertainty of it, mm -hmm. right? If, if you look at a calamity, but you're able to pinpoint how it happened and sort of how you can avoid it in the future, yeah. you take comfort in that, right? Oh, mm -hmm. we can figure this out. Science progress, can figure this progress, out. Yeah, we progress. will progress past this. But um, in all of our progress, COVID-19 still hit as hard as it did. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, it's, it's a threat to that Enlightenment worldview. Yeah. And hopefully for the better, hopefully it will um, help us rethink our eschatology a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And are we, um, if we're trying to go to the Enlightenment eschatology for comfort yeah. and it's not working, 
that's telling. And it's an opportunity to repent and say, yeah. I have hope in the resurrection. I have yeah. hope in Christ alone, not in my ability or my society's ability to figure this stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the second uh, rival eschatology uh, that he brings up is the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution is a story formed by Enlightenment autonomy and told through Romanticist expression. Uh, intellectual enlightenment is accompanied by sexual emancipation. The eschatology at work in this story places the autonomous individual at the center of an epic battle with forces of illegitimate authority arrayed against any sexual self-expression that does not conform to social norms. The Dark Ages are not the medieval times of ignorance, but the centuries full of arcane and inexplicable restrictions placed on human sexuality. Progress is made as sexual restrictions are loosened and as criticism of various forms of sexual expression diminish. Hmm. And so the uh, sexual revolutions, eschatology, is all about self-expression. Yeah. So what flows out of uh, the Enlightenment was Romanticism, which is all about self-expression, finding your true, what, inside, what are your deepest desires, your truest desires, and having the freedom to express those free from any hindrance, that's the meaning of life. Yeah. That, that where things are heading is everyone, according to the sexual revolutions eschatology, is everyone's heading to true self-expression yeah. without outside guidance, without outside interference. So you can see how the Enlightenment led uh, to this. And where technology and science um, moved the Enlightenment forward, um, entertainment has really moved the sexual revolution forward. Entertainment technology, so various forms of entertainment yeah. uh, draw us in and drive us uh, forward uh, with that. And so it's all about self-expression. And it's interesting, uh, Wax points out, that progress achieved through continually questioning and countering sexual norms because, according to this eschatology, the ultimate sin is no longer falling short of the glory of God, but failing to be true to oneself. Failure to be true to oneself. And man, talk about something that is counter to biblical thinking. <laughs> to say that this eschatology is all about self-expression, being true to yourself. The biblical view, he says, is um, the view of self, that, that the, the biblical view of the self is that humans are broken, twisted, and sinful. The self is something that needs redemption, not expression. Yeah. But Talk about a way of that, of that, how that gets twisted. And so there are some pretty obvious ways that this impacts our Christian discipleship. One is that you try to turn everything, uh, turn my Christianity into a vehicle that allows me to experience self-expression. Yeah. And so you see that show up in a, a few different ways, right? Uh, um, that I, I, I'm no longer uh, boasting in the cross, but who, uh, wh what my gifts are in the body of Christ. What role I get to play in the body of Christ? Am I this? Am I that? And you get all about the gifts, and the gifts are wonderful, but if the gifts become a vehicle to uh, give you a sense of self-expression and identity, well, it becomes anything but Christian. It becomes very destructive. And so that, that's one way that that idea of self-expression uh, kind of gets, gets uh, uh, um, moved, uh, moves in on our Christian discipleship and warps it in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, uh, another way that it can kind of show up in in Christianity is um, the whole idea that 
uh, sort of our primary Christian identity is one of brokenness as opposed to one of growth, right? Yeah. And so we we come to church as somebody who's broken, but it's almost it's almost in sort of a prideful way, right? I'm broken. This is who I am. This is just yeah. who I am, and, and God knows who I am, and and so we we sort of take the um, the mindset of what we might call the age of authenticity, and we bring it into the church, but not as a way of saying, so please God help me dismantle these idols and help make me more like you, mm-hmm. but instead as a way to sort of self-authorize, right, or self-authenticate uh, who we mm-hmm. are. And so this is who I am. These are my struggles. And God accepts me for who I am, and so therefore I accept me for who I am. Yeah. And so as opposed to saying, yes, I am deeply broken. And so being authentic about our brokenness, but also being authentic about our need to change, being yeah. authentic about our need to uh, progress and, and become more like Christ. Yeah. And so that's the, that's the purpose of recognizing our brokenness, right? Yeah. And so, and that fits into God's uh, great redemption plan, obviously. You know, you talk about the uh, just the freedom of choice and freedom of self-expression that started in the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so the first relativists were Adam and Eve. They were yeah. the first ones who said, I want to be able to choose right and wrong for myself, right? Yeah. I don't want to learn it from God. I don't want to receive it as revelation, but I simply want to choose it, and I want to, I want to make that choice. Yeah. So one quote that I uh, came across recently... It's from a guy named uh, Alan uh, Erholtz, maybe? We'll <laughs> Anyways, go with that. We'll go with that. <laughs> he says this um, in his book, The Lost City. He says, Most of us in America believe in a few simple propositions that seem so clear and self-evident they scarcely need to be said. Choice is a good thing in life. The more of it we have, the happier we are. Authority is inherently suspect. Nobody should have the right to tell others what to think or how to behave. Yeah. And so and you absolutely and he said that in the mid nineties. Mm. And so and you absolutely see that through the sexual revolution. Oh, absolutely. Right? The more choices the more sexual choices I have, the happier I will be. And nobody has the right to claim any sort of authority over my body and what I choose to do with yeah. my body. Yeah. And so and we've been seeing that for a long time now. Yeah. And so the challenge for the Christian or the uh, the job of the Christian and living in a society such as ours, not not just to uh, have change or uh, to understand what's going on inside of us, but how we can be an influencer for good mm-hmm. uh, and do discipleship, not just be discipled, is to, uh, as Wax puts it, to put sex in its place. Mm-hmm. Because with this whole business of, se- of, of uh, the sexual revolutions, eschatology, of it's all about self-expression, is that on the one hand, they exalt sex way higher than it ought to mm-hmm. be, meaning that it's uh, sex rather than just being the way our species procreates and the way that covenant is made in a, in a marital uh, covenant. Um, it, it, it actually says, this is who I am. This is my identity. Yeah. Who I am is who I am sexually. And talk about a gross exaltation. Oh, yeah. warped exaltation of that. But on the, same, uh, on the other hand, they have a very low view of sexuality where they yeah. say it's just a casual thing, it's just a biological thing. Yeah. And so there's, it's not something to be considered sacred. Um, so on one hand, it's over-exalted. On the other hand, it's um, under, uh, undervalued in a way. Yeah. And so he says, Christians, as Christians, we need to take sexual, sexual sins more seriously than our culture and take sexuality in general less seriously than our culture. Hmm. It says the church has had uh, has the paradoxical task of undercutting society's exalted hope in sex while also heightening the seriousness of sex's spiritual reality. Sex is something that God created for a specific purpose, a good 
purpose. And so I think it's interesting that paradox that he brings out yeah. there, that on the one hand, we want to uh, not uh, challenge the culture's exaltation, but all, so we want to bring it down and lift it up. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And I think one of the ways you do that is by um, is by sort of placing the idea of or placing the concept of sex, what sex is, in the bigger story, right? Mm-hmm. And so in the bigger story of creation and redemption and new creation. And so we understand that sex is a, a good thing that God created, but because of our fallen nature, that's where sin comes in. And so it gets distorted and combined with our own autonomy and power grab and pride and all of that stuff. And so you see a variety of distortions because of that. But God... He redeems that in Christ, right? And so yeah. we can we can put sex in its place in the sense that um, we see it as connecting to the covenant that God has made between man and wife, and He is He is redeeming it and bringing us to new creation to a greater marriage, right? Mm-hmm. He's He's bringing us to a great marriage banquet, and so seeing sex in um, relationship not to just who I am as my personal identity, nor as just something I do biologically, but I'm um, seeing. It through sort of a theological lens, right? Seeing it through an eschatological lens mm-hmm. and seeing where it's heading, right? What is the consummation of intimacy and marriage? Yeah, right? It is, it is the new, it is, it's the ultimate marriage. It's the mm-hmm. new marriage that we're going to experience in, yeah. in the new, new heavens and new earth. Good, good. Uh, one of the other things that he points out is that uh, with the, the sexual evolutions worldview is that they bring... Uh, and in order to bring sex into primarily being a, a an avenue of self-expression, it takes it away from being the one of the building blocks of the family, mm-hmm. and so the family uh, becomes undervalued. Yeah, and you certainly see that in our culture, yeah. and that has crept into our um, uh, the, the the church as well. You see divorce mm-hmm. rates quite high, and and and, uh, and the family you see a breakdown of the family. And he quotes, and so one of the one of the things that we want to do is to um, not just uh, say this sexual revolution and the way you're treating sex bad, icky, not okay, but a way to counteract that is to create a haven for the family to flourish. Hmm. So what do we do rather than just be angry about it and 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 say bad things about it? Uh, is create a haven, be a solution uh, for the family to grow. And so providing good um, things for couples to grow and have a good, healthy sexual relationship to train uh, the kids to be able to come into a right understanding of sex. If we're just silent on it, then guess what? The sexual revolution is also going to be heard. Yeah. (laughs) So often the church is silent and uh, people are being shaped by that. He quotes G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorites, uh, of talking about what happens if the breakdown of the family takes place. It says, this triangle of truisms of father, mother, and child cannot be destroyed. It can only destroy those civilizations which disregard it. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that if we diminish the family, then you see civilization uh, crumble. And I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, that's huge. I remember um, something that was... That was really um, significant on this point. Was one of our uh, one of our missionaries in China. He was talking about the sexual revolution after living in China for a time, and then coming back and just seeing seeing our sort of sexually saturated culture and how mm. quickly things had progressed over the last mm. fifteen or so years. Um, and and I remember we were talking to him about the uh, persecution in China. 
And he said something that was that was just so significant. He said, yeah, the, the, there is a possibility of persecution in China, sure. But the sexual revolution in America is everywhere. Yeah. And so whereas my daughter might experience trouble from persecution while we're in China, if she's in America, she will experience yeah, the that. influence yeah. of the sexual revolution. And so in his mind, it was in some senses safer for his daughter in China than it was here in America because yeah. of the influence of our sexually saturated culture. And that was, that was significant when he said that. Yeah. Well, the third rival eschatology uh, that he talks about, and the one that I think is the most important for us to understand, uh, because I think it's the one that impacts us the most, especially in our society or even in our, just our neck of the woods, is consumerism. Mm -hmm. Consumerism. And uh, his chapter where he starts talking about uh, Christianity and consumerism and this rival eschatology of consumerism is he, he talks first about the problem of consumerism, D the problem different than um, the Enlightenment or the sexual revolution, especially the sexual revolution. I think a lot of Christians try to distance themselves from that. Yeah. Uh, most do that. Um, but uh, consumerism is a much harder one to distance yourself from. He says, the most difficult task we face with consumerism is seeing it huh. because this outlook, more than the Enlightenment and the sexual revolution, undergirds so many of our actual practices in life. These practices shape us into, the people, into people who adopt a consumerist eschatology. Hmm. So... Because you can obviously choose not to participate in the sexual revolution. <laughs> Many have. <laughs> Many will continue to. Yeah. But you can't live in our society and not be a consumer. Yeah. If you're going to live, you have to consume some things. You have to work in this environment. Uh, and you, by doing that, by practicing that, you are reinforcing and nurturing certain ways of viewing uh, your past, present, and future that absolutely shape our fundamental way of thinking about things, and it leads to a different eschatology. Specifically, he talks about this being uh, an issue, that um, all social relations, activities, and objects can, in principle, be exchanged as commodities. So what makes a consumeristic mm -hmm. culture is that everything is commoditized. Yeah. Everything becomes a commodity. The core of a consumer culture, then, is this tendency to commoditize anything. A consumer culture in which everything can become a commodity reinforces the idea that nothing has intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. We find value in whatever is useful to us, not in what it is itself. Hmm. Man, that's huge. Yeah. Man, that's huge. That... As a consumer, we commoditize everything, and we rather than finding value in it, we only find value in it. As a consumer, you only find value in something and how it's useful to you. Why would you buy it? Yeah. You're not going to buy something unless it's useful to you in some way. And so what he's saying is that in such a culture where we, uh, we're surrounded with things to consume and we're encouraged to consume everything, that we just start looking at the world that way. Yeah. I will only interact with things, whether it's my Bible whether it's prayer, whether it's um, interaction with the body of Christ, whether it's going to church, whether it's uh, being a good steward of the gifts and talents that God has given me with my time, talent, and treasure, um, I will only do those things if it's useful to me. Hmm. And so that gets in the way of our Christianity big time in, in ways that are quite obvious.
Yeah, that's huge. And I think uh, one thing that's, that's, again, interesting about consumerism, um, not just the invisibility of it, but how consumerism even affects other worldviews, right? And so our consumerism, even the two that we've mentioned, how consumerism plays mm. into the sexual revolution mm-hmm. and even, even the Enlightenment worldview, right? One of the reasons why the sexual revolution exists is because we treat sex as a commodity, and therefore yeah. we treat human relationships as a commodity. We yeah. treat sex as something to be consumed, mm-hmm. which is why we have the pornography uh, yeah. epidemic that we have. And so when we, we treat all human interactions as, what can I get out of this? I will give yeah. you my time, I will give you my love and my intimacy if I feel like it's a good deal for me, mm-hmm. right? If I feel like I'm getting more than I'm giving, maybe. And so, and that obviously is really threatening to relationships. And even in terms of uh, something you mentioned earlier about the enlightenment idea of progress, I think one of the reasons why, for example, we... Um, why we don't view the older generation as very valuable is because we can't get as much out of maybe an older person as we can a younger person in the workforce or in the progress sure. of society. And so even that, where we commoditize our our, um, our minds, our education, our thinking. And so consumerism, it is its own worldview that also plays itself out in so many other different worldviews and so mm-hmm. many other uh, aspects of society and how we interact with one another and the society at large. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and uh, and through our consuming, the reason why it's so infectious, the reason why we've become a nation of consumers is not just because these things are useful to us in, in the practical sense. It's not that, oh, that foot bath really made my feet. It was useful for my feet. It's more than that. He says, in short, consumerism provides a system of meaning through which we interpret ourselves as individuals, define ourselves by the brands we purchase, and then assess our value in terms of economic and social status or whatever we are able to accomplish in the workforce. Hmm. So we find our value and our sense of identity through what we consume. Yeah. And we're driven, what, what we want to consume is based on what others consume. It's a real weird weird thing that we're drawn into. So what's popular, what seems to be useful to others, what's cool is something that I therefore want to have. Clothes, for example, are yeah. no longer just something to keep me warm yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and comfortable. Instead, they, uh, exp- they become a form of self-expression. They become a form of me finding a sense of identity and yeah. value significance in in the world that I live in. Yeah, that's huge. I uh, recently read that one of the big indicators of depression, actually, is um, your sort of social economic position in comparison to those who are closest to you. And so, for example, if you live in, let's say, a $500,000 house, right? It's a nice house. But if everybody else around you lives in a million-dollar house, you're actually more likely to be depressed, clinically Mm. depressed, if you're living in that situation. And so, which says, it's nothing about the objective nature, right? You could go anywhere with that. If you live in a million dollar house, but everybody around you is in a $2 million house, then it doesn't matter that you have a million dollar house anymore. And so it's an indicator of depression. And so it's not about the stuff that we have and the stuff that we consume, even as much as it is about us comparing ourselves to the stuff that other people have and the stuff that other people consume to prop up our identity and give us a sense of self and value in the world. Yeah, no, yeah, it's huge. And uh, to show how pervasive this is, um, even our society's calendar has been overtaken yeah. by consumerism. It used to be uh, that our uh, society was ordered around feast days that were to celebrate um, uh, the, the, the god of that society. And so yeah. in a Christian society, were all about uh, things that brought reverence 
uh, to Christ or drew you into deeper worship with Christ. But now uh, things have uh, the, our, our our calendar has been completely restructured around consuming. Think about it. Uh, Today, the calendar is structured around consumerism. Thanksgiving is the precursor to Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales, carrying us through the shopping season of Christmas Christmas, to all sorts of exercise and dieting offers in January, which is a purge of consumerist excess, but even the purge is sold to us in consumer terms. <laughs> to Valentine's Day, yeah. to Mother's Day, Father's Day, Memorial Day, and Labor Day, which become less about what we are remembering and more about the kickoff and end of summer season. So these, these are seasons and rhythms that give shape to contemporary society, he says. Note how most of these holidays uh, are not holy days in the old sense, but shopping days mm -hmm. in the new sense. When the purpose of life is consumption, then time is ref refigured to help people consume more and better. Even what days are made big in the contemporary church often are days that are that coincide with a consumer holiday. Yeah, and so again, it's a pervasive thing that uh, has arrested our rhythm, and then it has some uh, deep ramifications in our uh, um, in, in our discipleship. Specifically, a few things I want to uh, highlight that he mentions here. One is that because the the goal of a consumer is to um, it's it's almost more fun to seek to consume than it is to consume. Yeah. You're always on the hunt <laughs> yeah. for the the better deal. You're on the yeah. hunt for that just that product that will feel good. Scrolling through Amazon to see what's available is just as fun as actually getting it. Yeah, this is getting a little convicting here. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, think about how that idea of I again the mindset is I am a consumer, I'm looking for things that are useful to me, that'll be good to me, and I'm on the search and the hunt to get them to help me feel more, uh, to feel better about myself, to be satisfied and all those things. And so, how it impacts our Christianity, the therapeutic understanding of sin and salvation, all finds its foundation in um, how consumerism um, uh, warps our, our view of that. Sin, uh, the, it's not just repentance that I'm trying to engage in. I'm not repenting of my sin and embracing in salvation. I just want to feel better about my sin and feel better about my salvation. Yeah. Um, and the recasting of life as a journey, even. Hmm. Life is a journey. A quest for self-fulfillment is the unstated element that drives along the narrative for many individuals in a consumer uh, culture. And so the idea is, this is my journey. I'm not a member of a body of Christ. I'm not the member of a church yeah. and therefore want to submit to the body of Christ, submit to a, the, the church, and be dutiful to the body of Christ and, and to God. I will interact with God as long as I find Him useful. When I find God useful, I'm there. Yeah. If I don't find God useful, then I'm going to look for something else that is useful to me or more valuable to me. Yeah, that's fascinating. I recently um, was... I'm reading a couple articles on just some some pretty high profile um, deconversion stories yeah. or deconstruction stories recently, and looking at sort of the the common thread between that. You know, let, let's deconstruct the uh, the deconstruction story, so mm -hmm. to speak. And one of them was that whole concept of 
uh, my, my, my spiritual life as a journey, right? And so we start with one place, typically Orthodox Christianity in these deconversion stories. But then our hope is that we progress beyond that, right? Yeah. We, need to, we need to progress beyond these Orthodox beliefs. But it was the whole idea of, of my Christianity is not, it's not a group of people to belong to. It's not a group of, of uh, sort of tenants to submit to. It's not even, you know, it's, uh, it's very disconnected from those things. It's, it's my own personal journey of mm-hmm. finding myself. And so finding myself and sort of consuming Christianity as long as it's working for me is more important than belonging to a body yeah. or believing in what the Apostles' Creed says or something like that. And so yeah. therefore, if this part of the journey isn't working for me, it's all right, I'm on a journey. I'm going to evolve beyond this. Yeah. And so, and obviously that takes its form in uh, deconstructionism or yeah, deconversion sure. in these these pretty high-profile cases. Yeah, anytime there's a deconstruction, it meant that you started following a different eschatology well before you yeah. identified yourself as being deconstructed. Yeah, that, that's that, right. That's the end of that. You started that's following... Right a different uh, eschatology. Yeah. Um, another thing he says here is the way consumerism reacts, uh, recasts, uh, sorry, start over again. The way consumerism recasts Christianity is by turning the gospel into a commodity, something we believe because it is useful, not because it is true. Man, that's a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> something that we believe because it is useful, not because it is true. If it's true, you react and shape your life uh, uh, in accordance with that truth. If it's useful, you engage in it so long as it continues to be useful. Right. The moment you get tired of that, just like you may, I think of any new coat or, or just use coat for, you, you get a new coat, you just love it. You want to wear it all the time. You think it's amazing. Imagine it's a Carhartt coat. Like, yeah, yeah a vest, yeah, yeah. a Carhartt yeah. vest. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, if you look in the past of your life, there's been all kinds of things like that that you've gotten that at some point became no longer cool. Yeah. You got tired. It got worn out. Christianity will get worn out in your mind if you're approaching it uh, and you're engaging it simply because it's useful, not because it's true. Yeah. Man, there's a difference there. That's huge. He quotes uh, Nigel Scotland. Great name. Nigel <laughs> Scotland. He says this. My name is Nigel. The starting point of many has become my needs, my self-interest, and my satisfaction. Much of contemporary evangelism tells people Jesus will make them happy and fulfilled. People, therefore, look for a church that meets their needs, and they go to worship for what they can get out of it. Indeed, the comment, I didn't get much out of that service, is often passed without even a thought that there might have to be a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving or a concerted effort to worship God with all of one's heart, mind, soul, and strength. Mm -hmm. Thus, for many churchgoers, Christianity has become primarily a lifestyle, an ethos, a culture, or a club rather than a faith or relationship with the Lord who demands total commitment on the part of his followers and who wants them to live in community relationship with others. Mm, that's huge. Yeah, even uh, even when we talk about looking around for a church, a lot of people call it church shopping. Sure. And I'm church shopping as if the church is something that I I consume, you yeah. know, something that's that's there to entertain me as opposed to a body su- to submit to and a body to be held accountable to. Yeah. It's a completely different worldview. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always really appreciate it when uh, different folks come to the church who are new and they say, the Lord led us here or yeah. the Lord gave us a witness here, as opposed to looking at it like a shopping list. Yeah. Okay, I like your youth program. 
don't really like yeah. the preaching, love the worship, or whatever, you know, you're, you're itemized. And it's not that all those things shouldn't matter when we're just uh, deciding sure. on what church we want to go to. Sure. Th- those all matter. It's not that they don't. But what matters most is where have you called me to be? Yeah. Lord, I'm submitting to you, and I will bloom where I'm planted, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So there's this um, uh, recasting of Christianity that happens with consumerism that everyone is impacted by in some way. Uh, one of the uh, famous phrases that gets thrown out or has been uh, in over about 20 years or so that people have talked about is moralistic therapeutic deism. Mm. Like Christian so, Smith. Yeah, yeah. So moralistic therapeutic deism, which uh, it, it recast Christianity as being something that's moralistic. It helps you be a better you. It's therapeutic, makes you feel about better about you. <laughs> and deism, which is this sort of thing that God's off. It's not a personal distant. relationship. He's distant, but uh, he shows up maybe when I'm when I need him, or when yeah. I when I'm in a time of crisis or or, or whatnot. Yeah. And again, like I said earlier about how uh, a worldview is uh, uh, is is a source of comfort for us. And eschatology is a source of comfort for us. And when we're in a time of crisis, we find ourselves gravitating to that worldview to find comfort, which is why during the COVID-19 craziness, yep. what yep. did people do when the news of, of, of all this and the restrictions came? Costco was never more busy. Toilet paper, none to be had. What did they do? They, went, they, they did what would make them feel comfortable. They went yep. to consume. Yep. You go to consume. And you, you do that when there's a time of crisis, you go to find comfort in your worldview. So again, for the Christian, what a time we live in right now where you can see what eschatology you're really living. Are you looking for consumerism to make you better? What caused you to panic most? Mm-hmm. Was it the fact that Amazon wasn't going to be selling as many things as they used to be? What? <laughs> you mean I can't get that book that I really want <laughs> as quickly as I want? Uh, you know, we uh, is is it our if we're looking to consumerism to make us happy in a time of crisis, it it's uh, it's brought to bear in a yeah. way that's interesting. That's huge. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say the same thing, and I think it's it's been really one of the things that's been most fascinating through um, this whole pandemic, through this whole thing with coronavirus, is how much it has sort of served to dismantle the idol of consumerism. Because I think one of the reasons why consumerism exists as it does in America is because of the globalization and the accessibility of yeah. the things that we want, yeah. right? Before, there would be things that you would want that you simply could not get. You had no access yeah. to them, yeah. yeah. And so, but now with with places like Amazon, we can get anything you want in two-day free shipping. Mm, yeah. And that's not true anymore, right? That's not true right now. You can't go to Walmart and get toilet paper even. So even basic necessities yeah. because of the panic buying, because of the consumerism that people people are trying to dive into for a sense of comfort, um, things that we are used to always having access to, we don't have access to anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it's showing how the idol of consumerism falls far short of yeah. really being able to comfort oh, us in a yeah. time like this. And yeah. so even even Amazon, you know, I, I try to order something on Amazon and it might come for a month, mm-hmm. something that I feel like I really need, even yeah. if it's something I don't really need, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, it's just done a, a wonder in even just in my own heart, dismantling my idolatry of consumerism and realizing how, wow, I go to this, I go to Amazon. Yeah. 
when I'm looking for comfort. If I feel like things are not okay, mm-hmm. I try to get things around me that will support me and make me feel like I'm okay, even if it's just something silly like toilet paper, right? Yeah. <laughs> if I have enough toilet paper and water, things will be all right, yeah. <laughs> even yeah. though COVID-19 has nothing to do with those things. <laughs> yeah. It's just me consuming those things. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, been, it's been really, really a significant dismantling tool, um, specifically for the idol of consumerism during yeah. this time. Yeah, good, good. Um, one of the things that Wax says about moralistic therapeutic deism mm. Um, is that it leaves people with the shell of Christianity, a message that can no longer be proclaimed, only marketed. Hmm. So again, if we look at Christianity, if you look at your faith and your engagement in church and such as being something I do because it's useful to me, then you're never going to... We talk about getting in the way of being being an evangelist because you're not going to proclaim that. If it's true, you proclaim it because it's true. (laughs) If it's useful... You're not going to want to put that on someone else because who knows what's useful to them or not. Right. But if it's true, it's something to be proclaimed. And so uh, he says this. I thought this was just real clever the way he wrote this. Present the gospel as true, and people will find it helpful. Present the gospel as merely helpful, and people will consider it to be neither. <laughs> That's interesting. So is the gospel merely helpful, or is it true? And so um, one of the challenges to the Christian is to um, see themselves as stewards, not consumers. Mm. So just as a fundamental sort of, okay, well, how do I weed my way through um, this rival eschatology that's all around us and is being reinforced every time I make a purchase Mm. um, and every time I go to work to make money to make a purchase or whatever, is uh, remember, I'm a steward, not a consumer. I'm a steward, and so the things I have, I want to steward well in honor to God and for the flourishing of others, not to just get to feel better about myself and really do some heart, uh, really allow the Holy Spirit to do some heart surgery and expose those things, especially during a time, as we've already discussed, such as this, where our consumerism has been upended. Yeah. And even our, in, some, in some cases, people's ability to work and make yeah. a living to yeah. consume has yeah. been upended. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, and I would just add to that, I think, um, using this as a time for um, just continued generosity as well. I think one of the things that break us breaks us out of the consuming cycle is giving stuff away, right? Giving yeah. away money, you know, making money for the purpose of giving it away as yeah. opposed to making money for the purpose of getting stuff for myself. Yeah. And so, and I think that that's no more true than during a time of crisis, right? During a time of crisis where, um, you know, people don't just consume things to try to make them feel better. They're checking their bank accounts. They're pulling their money out. They're yeah. trying to say, am I going to be okay during this? Um, and so using this as a time to go, you know what, I mean, I'm going to give just like I've given. I'm going I'm to maybe even give a little bit more just as an exercise in saying uh, we, we trust the Lord. We don't trust in sure. bank accounts and toilet paper and Amazon. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, he says this, and I thought it was good. If our worship does not counter our consumerism, our consumerism will colonize our worship. Hmm. I'll say that again. If our worship does not counter our consumerism, our consumerism will colonize our worship. So how do you do that then? You know, well, what calendar do we follow as a church? Are we following the high church calendar or are we doing something surrounding all the consumeristic holidays? Also, I think when you're thinking of uh, 
your discipleship and your Christianity, or certainly as a ministry or as a church, is not to describe yourselves as new, innovative, fresh. That's one of the things that Wax talks about, because to, if you do that, you're buying into the consumerism or even the uh, um, uh, uh, enlightenment philosophy of it has to be progress, it has to be better, something old is bad, etc. And so he says, it's, it's good not to describe ourselves as radical and new and innovative and fresh, but rather as wise disciples who stand in a long line of saints who have been faithful to the gospel. And so one of the things I hope from here in this conversation or reading the book is to value the old, value the, uh, the, the, the saints who have gone before and stand on their shoulders moving forward and doing the same things they did, not just a fresher version of that. <laughs> and so something, why do we want something fresh? Why do we want something radical, something new? That's a branding technique to make something old seem a little bit different. It's like, uh, you know, extreme Doritos or something. <laughs> Is it really that much different than regular old Doritos? But so uh, the yes, other thing that uh, we want to uh, recognize that if our worship does not counter our consumerism, our consumerism will colonize our worship, and that simply means this: unless you take, unless in a consumeristic society, <laughs> in a consumeristic society, unless we take specific. Uh, um, focus and and effort to counteract that consumerism. Consumer, if we don't do that, consumerism will colonize your worship. It'll show up. It will take its place. And so, a couple different things we can do. One, what calendar are you following? Are you following the church calendar as a, a calendar that gives meaning and guidance to you? Um, looking at the high church calendar, or are you looking at just the consumeristic holidays? And then the last thing that he mentions, and I'll close with this, is keeping our spiritual disciplines, one of the things, uh, keeping them from becoming self-help consumerism. So what it means to be a disciple is you have all kinds of things that you're uh, doing, all kinds of um, um, uh, uh spiritual disciplines that we're engaging in, disciplines like prayer, disciplines like you know, reading your Bible, disciplines of fasting, disciplines of, um, you know, on and on and on. There's a variety of them. Great books written on Richard Foster's book, A Celebration of Discipline. Um, but how are we, why are we engaging these in these disciplines? Are they a form of self-help or are they worship? Mm-hmm. Big difference. Yeah. He says this, because it is grounded in God's redemptive events... In the past and in the future, eschatological discipleship widens the focus of personal piety from the inward focus of God's transformation of the soul to the outward focus on God's transformation of the cosmos. Hmm. So in sum, what does it mean to be engaged in eschatological discipleship? It means that uh, we are a part of a bigger story. Yeah. It's not all about us and what I can figure out, what I can understand, and what I get to enjoy. It's about I get to be caught up in this grand story of who Christ is, what he's doing, and where he's heading, and I get to be on that train. And so making sure that all aspects of our discipleship are a part of that, as opposed to um, being a consumer. Good. So who would you recommend this book to? Is this just a book for pastors, or is it a, a book that everybody can read? No, this is a book for everybody. Cool. Absolutely. It's not just a book for pastors. Anyone who would uh, take a look at this book, Eschatological Discipleship, might not be a typo, title that you would be attractive to you, but if you live in this world, if you live in this culture, this is a book for you to read To Again, the better we can understand the cultural moment we live in and the impact it has on us, yeah. 
And the way we think, the way we feel, the way we do life, the better disciple we're going to be. And this book will help you do that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeremy, and uh, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate it, and we are looking forward to seeing you next time.